this morning, we want to take our time and we want to look at the gospel according to John. We want to look at chapters verses 19, verses 16 through 42. John, chapter number 19. We will begin reading in verse 16, and God's word declares, So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription to be put on it, on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So so the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, why have I written um, what I've written, I've written. And and when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. Also his tunic, but his tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top to the bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clophus, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took, to, uh, took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing Uh, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath for that For that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate for their legs to be broken, that they may be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that that he was already dead, and they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that he also may believe. For these things took place that the scriptures may be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave gave him permission. So he came and took his body away. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus... They bound it in linen clothes 
with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Uh, just for a few moments this morning, I want to preach specifically uh, from the subject title, Life Lessons from the Lord. Life Lessons from the Lord. Let me pray for us. God, it's exciting to be able to open up your word. But today is a little bit more special. God, because today is a day where we have set aside to celebrate an empty tomb. Not just a place, but a person. Not just a religious event, but a relationship that has changed and transformed our lives. God, I pray that we would not simply see a story that's familiar, God, but I pray that we would see truth that can be applied to every aspect of our life. Truth that makes life different. Truth that helps us honor you and please you. God, if we're honest, some of us came today out of obligation. Some of us came today out of routine. God, but regardless of the reason why we came today, God, I pray that you would speak to us. God, that we would hear clearly from you. God, help us, God, to know your word. God, but help us to leave here willing to obey your word, willing to apply your word, and willing to live your word. That is my prayer, and that is why we're here today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Whenever we open up a sermon, um, we want to do the hard work to make a connection um, between what is going on today and what is going on in the text. Uh, so many times, uh, preachers, uh, we stand here and we talk a lot and we, we give a lot of words, and sometimes the sermon falls flat because we don't get to see a demonstration of what God has said to us. It's hard for me because sometimes I get to a place to where I want to give a new word, I want to give a different word, I want to give a more exciting word, but my faith reminds me that God's word is living and active, and as a pastor and a preacher, I don't need to come up with something new, uh, I don't need to come up with something creative, I need to come up with something that is clear so that we can see exactly what God is calling us to say, do, and hear. So I'm going to go back to a familiar opening that most of us have heard, and I'm actually going to close with a familiar closing that we've heard all once before. One of my favorite poems by, is by the name of Edgar Guest, and he famously wrote the poem. Uh, he wrote this poem. It's called, I'd Rather See a Sermon. He said, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely tell the way. The eye is a better pupil, more willing than an ear. Fine counsel is confusing, but an example is always clear. And the best of all preachers are the men who live their creeds. To see good put in action is what everyone needs. I can soon hear, or I can soon learn how to do it if you don't just tell me the way. I can watch your hand in action, but your tongue may fast stray. 
Lecturers may deliver wise words that are fine and true, but I'd rather get my lesson by observing what you do. When I see a deed of kindness, I am eager to be kind. When a weaker brother stumbles and a strong one stands behind, just to see if he can help, then goes um, stronger with the help to become as big and as thoughtful. That is what we are called to do. One good man teaches many. Many believe what they behold. One deed of kindness is noted and is worthy of many told. For he who stands with men of honor learns to hold the honor dear. For right living speaks a language which is always so clear. Though I'm able to speak charms with my words and eloquence in the day, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. When you think about that truth, when you think about that poem, it's a reminder that Jesus did not simply uh, speak a good sermon. He lived a great sermon. When you look up, think about the teachings of Christ, when you think about uh, something like the Sermon on the Mount, which has been called the greatest sermon ever preached, when you see the text, Jesus preached the truth, but what we always see is Jesus always married what he said with how he lived. It's a challenge for us today to not simply uh, be people who are willing to speak the truth, but it is a calling for us to be able to apply the truth that God has given us. I want to remind you of something. What you truly believe is not expressed in what you say. What you most believe is always expressed by how you live your life. What you believe is most expressed by the decisions that you make. What you believe is most expressed by the commitment to the application of your words. And when we think about that truth, it is a reminder that Jesus uh, doesn't simply uh, tell us a good message. Jesus doesn't simply give us empty words. Jesus doesn't simply uh, have uh, wonderful sounding, eloquent words that, that give us the warm fuzzes. But Jesus was totally willing to live the life that he called us to live. One of the greatest things about Jesus, hear this. Is Jesus, yes, came to die for our sins in our place, but Jesus also came that we have a model for how to live life. There is not an aspect of your life, there is not an area of your life where you cannot look to Jesus and know how to live that area well. He teaches us how to live, he teaches us how to love, and he teaches us how to leave well. And that's what we're going to talk about today. When you look at the text and you see in verse number 19, Jesus first gives us a lesson in living well. Verse 19 says, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. And it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. When we consider the life of Jesus, we must understand that the life that Jesus lived is the supreme example of a person who was willing to live well. Uh, before the book was written, before the song was sung, Jesus was willing to live his best life. Not simply because of the miracles, not simply because he had a lot of followers, but Jesus was willing to live his best life. Jesus was willing to live a significant life because of what was dominated in his life, because of what was uh, focused on in his life. When you see the life of Jesus, we see that what makes his life different, what makes his life distinct is that Jesus was focused on not simply living, but Jesus was simply focused on giving his life away. 
His life was not held hostage by living for himself, but his life was fueled, his life was focused, and his life uh, had purpose because Jesus was committed to living life for others. He wanted to give his life away. How many of us can be honest about the distractions that we have in our life because we are not concerned about giving our life. We're more concerned about living our own selfish life. How many of us are consumed by the distractions like where we will stay, what clothes we will wear, what cars we will drive, what vacations we will take, and when you look at the life of Jesus, you see a totally different focus. Matthew 20, verse 28 tells us, even the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to give his life as a payment for our sin debt. That passage is reminding us that Jesus didn't focus on simply living, but Jesus focused on giving his life away. When you think about Jesus, you look think about the four Gospels, we see many of the records, we see many of the testimonies of how Jesus was actually willing to live well. Uh, sometimes uh, people will give you a backhanded compliment. Um, I got one this morning. I'm going to address it after church. I'm not going to address it right now. <laughs> but in the text, there is a backhanded compliment that's given to Jesus. In verse 19, Pilate wrote the inscription and put it on the cross, Jesus uh, of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. This inscription uh, that's in the text would usually uh, be the description or the identification of the person's crime who was being crucified. The inscription found here on the cross um, of Jesus is totally different than most people's inscriptions. Uh, nine times out of ten, it would be something bad. It would be something blasphemous. It would be something embarrassing. But Jesus' inscription is totally different. If we were crucified today, our inscription would say something like, he's a failure, he's a fraud, he's a phony. But when you look at uh, the inscription of Jesus, you see something totally different. In the culture, um, the person was responsible for, for carrying their cross uh, from the judgment place to the place of execution. Uh, they were required to be embarrassed. They were required to be shamed. And essentially what is happening here is they are trying to give Jesus a backhanded compliment. When Pilate says, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, uh, let's see the other side of it. There's no crime stated. There's no moral failure mentioned. Pilate could, not, Pilate could not say he lied. Pilate could not say he stole. Pilate could not say he murdered. He was jealous. He was prideful. He could not say that he was short-tempered or rude or disrespectful. The only thing that he could say was he was from a place called Nazareth. In the first uh, chapter of John's gospel, we see a question that is asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Our Lord was born in Bethlehem, but he was, he was raised in Nazareth. Uh, we don't catch it because we're not in the culture, but culturally to be from Nazareth, to be from Nazareth was not a good place to be from. Uh, think about that area of town that you don't want to live in. That's Nazareth, right? <laughs> think about the area of town that you don't want to drive in after a certain time. time that's Nazareth. Jesus was from a place uh, that was known as a second-class place. He was from a place that was rejected. Uh, he was from a place that would be um, very closely associated with, uh, like, the Auburn Tigers. They're like the second-class team. Gotcha, buddy. 
culturally, to be called a Nazarene meant that you were uneducated, that you were stupid, that you lacked culture, and that you were not valuable. To be from Nazareth meant that you were from the opposite side of the tracks and it meant that people would count you out. To be from Nazareth meant that you could do nothing good, nothing significant, nothing beneficial with your life because at the end of the day, you are from Nazareth. I love the text because it reminds us that for those of us who are from the opposite sides of the tracks, for, for those of us who are not born with a silver spoon in our mouth, for those of us who don't have the perfect education or who don't have the, the perfect kind of culture, it's a reminder that God can do something significant with your life when you are focused on what's most important. Today, it doesn't really matter where you're from. It doesn't really matter where you live. It doesn't really matter what zip code you have. It doesn't matter your level, level, level of education. It doesn't matter this morning if you have a PhD or you are lacking a GED. What's most important is not where you're from. It's where God is taking you. What's most important in your life is not where you were born. What's most important is why you were born. What's even more important than that is that you are born again and have a relationship with God. In the first chapter, uh, John addresses this question, can, good, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And we see that the hope of the world came from a place that the world had counted out. The text also tells us that he was referred to as the king of the Jews. Uh, in the text, it says it is written in Hebrew or Aramaic, Greek and Latin. Uh, those details are significant because for one thing, it shows that Jesus was crucified at a place where culture and people met. Hebrew was the language of a religion. Greek is the language of philosophy. Latin is the language of law, which means clearly that the text is telling us that the death of Jesus impacts religion, it impacts philosophy, and it impacts the law. Jesus in his life impacts religion, philosophy, and the law, three areas of culture that dominate today. By Pilate writing, uh, the, the passage in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, we're reminded that there is not an area of your life that Christ should not touch. There's not an area in your life that Christ's presence should not make the difference. In the Gospel, we see, in the Gospel of John, we see that there is a worldwide dimension to the life of Jesus. There is a, some commentators say it this way, that Pilate, without knowing it, wrote a gospel tract because he tells us that the whole world was to be impacted by Jesus. Too many of us live our lives in such a way where we want to limit the impact of Jesus to certain areas of our lives only. Too many of us, myself included, restrict the life of Jesus to just one day a week and its impact. Too many of us restrict the presence and the authority of Jesus to one aspect of my life. We want him in our life, but we don't want him in every area of our lives. We want him to be present, but we don't want his authority to make an impact in every area of our lives. 
Uh, there's a book that I often reference. It's called Our Heart, Christ Home. It's a beautiful allegorical book about this young man who comes to know Jesus. He's at church. He, he gets saved. Christ enters his life, and Christ um, had, takes up residence in his life. And what, what encourages this young man more so than anything else is that as he's leaving church, Jesus goes with him. And as he gets home, Jesus is at home with him. He's so, so thankful that Jesus is not just the God at church, but Jesus is a present, active Savior in his life. Initially, he is so encouraged that he is so fired up by it. But quickly, that encouragement turns to frustration because he wants Jesus in the house, but he didn't want Jesus' presence in every room in the house. When his friends came over, he wanted Jesus to, to be in the house, but he didn't want Jesus' influence and access to make an impact on every room in the house. I think it's important for us to say this. It's important for me to say this as a pastor. The quickest way to kill a part of your body is to cut it off from the rest of the body. The quickest way for you to kill an area of your life is to cut it off from the other parts of your life. I've learned the illustration from Brian Pilon. He says it all the time. It is the truth. If you want to see your arm die, cut it off from your body. If you want to see your foot die, cut it off from your body. That is true in the natural world, but it's also true in our world spiritually. If you want to see your faith die, cut it off from the body. Not your physical body, but the body of Christ, the church. If you want to see an area of your life diminish, cut it off from Christ's presence. If you want to see an area of your life struggle, choke out the presence of Christ in that particular area. And yes, we have a personal relationship with Jesus, but that personal relationship with Jesus is called, we are called to live that out in community. That is true for the church corporately, but it's also true for us personally. When I personally deny Christ access to areas of my life, it will kill that area of my life. If I just give Christ access to my life on Sunday, but not Monday through Saturday, Monday through Saturday, I will experience a spiritual death. If I give Christ access to my life spiritually, but I deny access to to Christ uh, to my life occupationally or socially or financially, then I will ultimately experience a death in those areas when I cut off Christ. It is not a coincidence that when we are flourishing, it is because we are connected to Christ. And at the, on the other side of that, when we are dying and we, we are struggling, it is also because we are disconnected from Christ. That means, I want, to, I want you to hear me very clearly, being, being connected to Christ is not just com- about coming to church. It's not just about being a good Christian. It's not about just having the good answers. Being connected to Christ means whatever Jesus says about a specific area of my life, that is the standard for that area of my life. When Jesus speaks to an area, I got to make what he has said a priority in that area. My, My wife is here. This is hard for me to say because it's accountability. When Jesus says... Love her like Christ loved the church. That's my first responsibility. Everything else must become secondary secondary to that. 
And when I look at her, I've got to be honest with myself. Am I doing what Christ has called me to do? In, every, in any area of my life, whether it's my, my pride, my anger, my, 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 my weight, every area of my life is an area where God has an opportunity to speak. The question is, am I willing to accept what God has said in that particular area? I, I love the passage because when Jesus is called the king of the Jews, it's a reminder that he's not simply the king of the Jews. He's the savior of the world. And because he is the savior of the world, he is the Lord of the world. It's amazing to me that many of us, we desire the salvific nature of Jesus while denying the lordship of Jesus. Jesus did not come to simply be our savior but he came also to be our Lord. So first we see a lesson in living well. Jesus lived a perfect sinless life. That's why he is our Lord. Secondly, he lived, we see a life lesson in loving well. In loving well. Verse 25 says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clovis and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to his disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took, took her to his own home. Verses, 24 through 20, uh, verses 25 through 27 remind us of the people who were present and willing to stand with Jesus at the crucifixion. You have the apostle John. You have Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary, um, you have uh, Mary's sister. You have uh, Mary, the wife of Cleophas. And you also have Mary Magdalene. We must recognize that there was, there had to be a tremendous amount of courage for this small group to be willing to stand with the Savior. I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I cannot speak for you, but, but there have been times in my life when people were willing to stand with me in a hard time, and it is in those moments where those people's love for me has meant so much. When, when I'm down, not just on the good days, not just on the days when we have the new church, or not just on the good days when we move into a new house, but, but on those tough days, on those rough days, those days like October 18th in 2011 when my son went to surgery. I will never forget the people who showed up at the, at the hospital that day. I will never forget on June 26th when Avita's mother's passed away. I will never forget that day, how many people came and, and were there with us. I will never forget the days of my life when I have been struggling with sin and I've been able to call a brother and be able to confess my sins to them and they have been willing to encourage me. And I believe in my heart, I believe with all my heart, when you think about the passage that Jesus had to be encouraged by the presence of his people in the midst of a hard time. I think it's a, it's a model for what the church should be. Not just um, a, a, a great environment, not just a pretty building, not just an entertaining service. But when people are, are going through rough seasons of life, 
prayerfully we can stand with them and walk with them and encourage them and, and, and prayerfully we can make sure that people are not doing life by themselves. Uh, prayerfully we will be so connected that we are a true family and when someone is struggling the struggles of others mean so much to me that I am willing to roll up my sleeves and enter into the struggle with them rather than saying something uh, cute and sweet like praying for you or you know what God gonna make a way or you know what the Lord don't make no mistakes. It's easy for us to say those things. It's easy, it's easy for us to say those things rather than entering into the rough moments and serving and loving people well. I know this is a controversial movie, but it's just one of my favorite movies. Sorry if this offends you because I'm a pastor, but one of my all-time favorite movies is Forrest Gump. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things in that movie that are not desirous for my life personally or our church, right? But when I think about that movie, there's one specific scene that just stands out to me. It's the the scene when Forrest is his first day on the bus, right? And he's getting on a bus and he's looking for a seat. And he sees somebody and there's an empty seat. And what does he say? Can't sit here. (laughs) Gets to the next seat. Seat's taken. And he is struggling on the bus. He is looking for somebody to give him an opportunity to find a safe space. Then, in his own words, he hears the most beautiful voice in the world. (laughs) He hears Jenny. And Jenny says, you can sit here. And from there, like, their relationship flourishes. Now, I'm not, I'm not, nothing else in the movie I'm I'm, I'm encouraging. (laughs) But, but that is a, it is a present picture of what people should experience in church. Like when people come here, we should say, you can sit here. You can do life here. You can walk here. Like we can struggle together here. Like we can be each other's brother and sister here. And the more we can live that way, the more people will experience the changing that can only come from our gospel community. If we just come here on Sunday and check off a box, if we just come here on Sunday and just go through the motions, I really believe that is one of the most unhelpful things you will ever do. But if you come here and you get in community with others, you find some brothers and sisters who care about you, who love you, who are going to pray for you, who are going to challenge you, who are going to walk alongside you, I really believe your life can be transformed and changed. When you think about it, Jesus is on the cross. He's being crucified. He is there in agony. He's there in pain. Hour after hour, he desperately strained for breath. Jesus was closer to death than he had ever been before. And he is bearing the weight of the world's sin. Catch this. Every sin from past, every sin from present, all sins in the future. Think about uh, that moment. Think about your life and how many sins and how much weight your life personally added to the sin, debt, and sin payment that Jesus had to make. Jesus had to bear your disobedience. He had to bear your hard-heartedness. He had to bear even the sins that you would you would blush if they were exposed at this moment. Jesus had to bear all of your sins. Now I want you to multiply your sin not by just every human being that has lived, but every, by every human being that has lived, by every human being that is living, and every human being that will one day live. That is the weight of what Jesus was having to bear. 
And what stands out to me more so than anything else is Jesus is on the cross as he's there ready to make a payment for our sins, ready to make a payment that he should not have made. As he's ready to make that payment, what does he do? He shows how much he loves us. He looks down at the disciple whom he loves. He looks down at his mother. And even in the midst of his suffering, even in the midst of his pain, even in the midst of his sorrow, he made a confession about how much he loved the people whom he was dying for. The gospel message is not a message of you trying to perform and you trying to get it right. The gospel message is a message of God loves us so much that he was willing to lay down his life for us. If you were to go back to John 17, just two chapters before, in John 17, Jesus is praying even before he goes to the cross. He prays not just for the current believers, but he's actually praying for every person who would ever believe the message of the gospel. And as he prays, he's praying not just uh, for, 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 for empty seats. Jesus is praying for you and me. You can go back and read John 17 today and see that God is literally praying for you that way, that your faith would not fail, that Satan would not conquer you, that you would find community, that you would not be overtaken by the world. That is how Jesus is praying for you. That takes place before the cross. On the cross, Jesus is willing to pray. He's praying for us while he's on the cross, and even after he was raised from the dead, and now that he is ascended to heaven, he is still interceding for us. When you think about that, is a reminder that God's love and God's hope for us is never changing and everlasting. Romans 8.34 tells us who, can, who, who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who, who, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? We have a Savior that loves us so deeply that Jesus is willing to stand with us and Jesus is willing to also, here's the, here's the key to this point, willing to give us even more responsibility to love others. As Jesus is on the cross, Mary and John are gazing at him and Jesus is gazing back at them. And as Jesus is gazing back at them, he summoned all the strength and he gasped and he spoke to his mother and he says, John, this is your mother. And Mary, this is your son. Before his knees buckled and before he breathed his last breath, a final instruction was given to those whom he loved. In obedience, John took Mary as a surrogate mother. But I want you to see that Jesus adds responsibility to his plate. Please do not miss this point. John was loved deeply by Jesus. And in response to his love for John, Jesus does not give him a pass. Jesus does not give him a bigger blessing. Jesus does not give him uh, what we pray for most often, like a bigger car or a bigger house or more money. Jesus says, I love you so much that I'm going to give you more work to do. Jesus says, John, I love you so much. I love you so dearly then I'm going to add responsibility to your plate. He says, Jesus, he says, John, I love you and care for you so much that I'm going to give you something really hard to have to deal with. I love that point because it really does remind us that what we think should happen is totally contrary to what often happens in the gospel. 
I, personally, you, you let this guy hit a couple couple days in a row with a quiet time, couple days in a row having devotion with V, couple days in a row, you know, having my devotion with the kids, let somebody swerve in front of me in, in traffic and I don't say nothing crazy. I'm like, Lord, hey, let's go. <laughs> come on now. Let, come on, wh- where's that blessing? Right? Like, I know I'm about to get a promotion. I know, I know something's about to happen big, right? And I think that way because my heart is sinful. And it's good for me to see the text because maybe, maybe things in my life that I have concluded are struggles and pain. Many of the things that I have concluded in my life are things that are from the enemy. Maybe those are things that have been given to me by God. Maybe those responsibilities have been things that God has allowed me to experience. Why? Because he loves me. And he knows I'm going to be a good steward over what he's given me. I'm sure that there were times when Mary got a little overwhelming to John. I'm sure he, I mean, let's be real. I don't have, I don't have an in-law, so I can say this. I'm sure that there's some people here who have in-laws who you're ready for them to leave, right? I'm sure you have that. I would never say that if my, because, but I don't have those, right? I'm sure there's people here who, who say, you know what, I'm tired of my house guests. I'm tired of people being around. So I'm sure that Mary got on his nerves. I'm sure that Mary was something that became a burden at moments. But at the end of the day, God's care for him meant, I'm going to give you something really, really special and make sure you take care of it. A couple weeks ago, my wife had to go out of town and we got a new car and it became very, very apparent that she needed to just drive the car and I needed to keep the van for the kids. I said, no problem, boo, take, take the car, you're good. I gave her the keys and I didn't think about it because I knew she would take care of it. And sometimes I need to do a better job of understanding that when the Lord places things in my life, He's placing those things in my life because he believes and knows that I can take care of it. Jesus gave him added responsibility because that is why that was a way for him to experience the love of God. And rather than God allowing us to have added responsibility and we think that God is punishing us and God is mad at us and God is frustrated with us. And if I had more faith, I wouldn't be going through this. Maybe I would do well to think and celebrate. Lord, thank you for the responsibility. Lord, thank you for the added responsibility at work. Lord, thank you for the added responsibility in my community. Lord, thank you for allowing me to take care of what, you, what you've entrusted me with. I think it's also important for me to say when you think about John, he was one who received great visions from the Lord. If you look at the book of Revelation, it is a, it is a revelation that God gave John while he was on a place called the Isle of Patmos. John was able to see things and experience things that no other man was able to experience. Well, what stands out to me about his life is the issue of stewardship. Before John received the vision at Patmos, he received a responsibility at Golgotha. Before God blessed him with the great vision, God gave him a simple responsibility. And before God blesses us with more, We've got to be willing to be faithful where we are. That's why Matthew 25, 23 says, as Matthew said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. 
enter into the joy of your master. Many of us want God to give us more. We're praying and seeking God for more responsibilities, more opportunities. But here's the truth. Can God trust me with what he has already given me? So first, we have a life lesson in living well. Secondly, we have a life lesson in loving well. And then lastly, we have a life lesson in leaving well. Verse 28 says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. I love the the picture here. Jesus says, it is finished. A question can be easily asked, what is finished? Notice Jesus did not say, and I've said this before, Jesus did not say, I am finished. But Jesus does say, it is finished. One of my favorite preachers to this point says, the eternal plan of redemption is finished. Jesus' highway from heaven is finished. Jesus' work on earth as a man is finished. The calling and equipping of disciples on the earth um, or the original disciples is finished. The job had been done. The song had been sung. The blood had been shed. The prophecy had been filled. The sacrifice had been made. The penalty had been paid. And therefore, Jesus could say, it is finished. He could say it's finished because God's love was revealed to us. He could say it is finished because God's grace is demonstrated to us. He could say it is finished because everything we need pertaining to godliness and life had be secured for us. That is why Jesus could say it is finished. But we also got to understand that Jesus never said, I am finished. When you think about it, Jesus from the scriptures is the head of the church and every head needs a body. Some of us get so frustrated with if God is so loving, if God is so good, then why does God allow all of these bad things to happen? If God is all seeing, if God is all knowing, if God is all powerful, then why in the world is God allowing the hurt and the pain and the shame to exist? And I want to tell you this. God allows those things to happen because the church is not doing what we're called to do. We are the body. He is our head. The head tells the body what to do. And if the, if the body is not listening to the head, then the head cannot fulfill the purpose that the body is called for. And a lot of times we get upset with people not being fed and sin being real and people being frustrated. And the question is, as the church, are we listening to the head, not the pastor? Are we listening to Christ? Are we doing what Christ has called us to do? And a lot of times we're frustrated and upset about things that we can fix. We're frustrated and upset about things that God has called us to address. And rather than being so upset because God has not done something uh, magically, you and I should have the attitude of how is God calling me to address those issues? How is God calling me to make sure that we leave and finish well? So Jesus leaves a legacy of finishing well, but the Jews leave an awful legacy of rejecting well. 
Verse 31 says, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. They didn't want the, the land to be defiled, not, really, not realizing that they had defiled themselves because they rejected Jesus. In context, we got to see that to reject Jesus is not something that they did, but it's really something we do. They knew the law, they knew the scriptures enough to say that we don't need to leave a dead body out of here. But they did not accept that the body that was broken and beaten was the body that was broken and beaten for their sins. We also have, lastly, a legacy of two secret disciples. We're done. Verse 38 says, And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he may take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took his body away. Verse 39 Nicodemus also, who came earlier and come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. When you assemble the data here about Joseph of Arimathea, Matthew 27, 57 tells us that he was rich. Mark 15, 43 tells us that he was prominent in the Jewish council. Luke 23, 50 tells us that he was a good and righteous man who had consented to do what the council had told him. But in verse 38, it tells us that he is a secret disciple who was secret because he was in fear of those who were around him. The text also mentions Nicodemus, the man who visited Jesus in John chapter number three. The man who, who asked the questions, how can a man be born again? The one who Jesus challenged to search the scriptures. And after searching the scriptures, we see that Jesus led him to life because he was willing to accept eternal life. I'll close with this. When you look at the two men, the two secret disciples, you see very clearly that discipleship will destroy your secrecy or your secrecy will destroy your discipleship. Say it again. Discipleship will destroy your secrecy or your secrecy will destroy your discipleship. Because we live in a day where we are prone to be secret. We are prone to not want to put ourselves out there. We are prone not to want to be the Jesus freak fanatic. We don't want to be labeled that way. But the more we are impacted privately, the more it leads to us making public declarations for the Lord. The one who was fearful of being identified with Jesus says, the body that was broken, I want it. The one who was scared about what people thought was willing to say, the body that was beaten, I want it. The one who was afraid of the council's opinion says, the body that was bruised and bled, he says, I want it. And I hope and pray that that's our attitude. I hope and pray that our private discipleship leads us to public commitment to the Lord. As I began, I said I was going to end with a familiar story. I was praying about it, and I think I'm going to, I'm going to use this story every Resurrection Sunday for the next, if I have a long I'm here as a, as a pastor of this church. I think it's going to be something that will remind me to continue to always preach the gospel without any apologies and to make sure the message is clear. So here it goes. A missionary in Africa tells a story about taking the gospel to a new tribe. 
in the northern part of the continent. To get to the people or the unreached people group, he had to go past where the common people would go. Knowing that he needed some help, the missionary appealed to a local chief to get a guide. The missionary asked if there was someone in the village who would serve as a guide to the distant tribe. The chief summoned a man, tall, battle-scarred, carrying a long axe. The missionary and the man agreed to pay a price, and the next morning the missionary set off to the bush following the new guide. The way became increasingly rough, and the path all but disappeared. There was an occasional mark or cut on a tree or a freshly cut path. And after hiking for several hours, the missionary called out to the man and asked him to stop for a break. Though the missionary was, a, was tired and very intimidated by the man, in his heart he was wondering if the guide was leading him the right way. Though he was very apprehensive, his curiosity got the best of him, and he mustered up enough courage to ask the guide, are you really sure that you know the way? The guy was very offended by the question. He took a moment just to stare at the man. Then he responded, Sir, do you see this axe in my hand? Do you see these scars on my body? With this axe, I blazed a trail to the village where we met. Where you are trying to go is where I came from. You asked me if I know the way. Before you, sir, before I came, sir, there was no way. We must understand that Jesus came from a place that we are all trying to go. And before he came, there was no way. The scars of Calvary attest the price that he paid and the, and the, and the, the trail that was blazed. My question for us this morning is, have you accepted Jesus as the way? Have you accepted Jesus as the truth? And have you received Jesus as your life? Chris, you can come on back up now. I think it's always appropriate to take a few moments as Chris plays to reflect on those questions. There are a lot of us who have been in church a long time, and a lot of us who uh, who know the story, who have who are able to recite the story. But the question I close with is this: Have you accepted Jesus as the way? That there is no other way. That the hope, that the life, and the peace that we all desire is found on one path. And that path was blazed by the blood of Jesus. That path is open because Jesus offers it to us. Not based upon anything you do or don't do but based solely upon his love for you, his care for you, and his invitation for you to surrender to him. So with every head closed, or every head bowed, every eye closed, I say this. If you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, I want a relationship with Jesus. Not I want to be better, not I want to be more blessed. But I want to accept Jesus as the way. If that's you this morning, I want you to just lift up your eyes and look at me. Thank you, sister. Just look up at me so I can see you. I don't want to make any mistakes. You can even throw your hand up at me so I can see you. 
I believe this is important because we must give people an opportunity to respond. You don't have to respond to the church. You don't have to come walking down the aisle. But you need to ask yourself the serious question. Have I personally accepted Jesus as the way? Secondly, have you accepted Jesus as the truth? There are a lot of us who've accepted the way, but we are struggling with whether or not I can trust God with truth, with how I live my life, with how I make decisions, with how I move forward. What I've been saying to our church lately is God's plan is a perfect plan and that plan needs no corrections. God loves you enough to not just die for you, but God loves you so much that God was willing to give you everything that you need in your life. Not everything that you want, but everything that you need. Lastly, not just have we accepted the way and the truth, have we accepted his life, that I am called to be identified with Jesus, not just on a one week, one day per week kind of thing, but I want every aspect of my life to be modeled after Christ. Okay? I've said a lot. I want to go back to the first group. If you are here this morning and you want to make a first time public profession of Jesus, if you want to repent of your sins and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to ask you to do something really crazy and really bold. I'm going to ask you to stand up for me this morning. If you don't feel comfortable, it's okay. But I really believe, thank you, sister. I really believe that's what we do because it gives us an opportunity. Want everyone to look at me quickly? Before we have our closing song, want us to give our I want to give just a few points of application for us and we'll be done this morning when we think about the lessons from the cross we think about the lessons that God has given us my first prayer for us is that we shift our focus from simply living to giving our life I believe in my heart that the Lord has blessed you and planted you wherever you are and you have a lot to give You don't have to be a preacher to give. You don't have to be a deacon to give. But God has blessed you with a lot to give. Secondly, I hope that we shift our focus from where we are from to where God is calling us to be. We are created to know God and make him known. And after we have a relationship knowing God, the next step is making him known where we are. Thirdly, 
pray that we humbly accept the responsibility as a blessing from God, not a burden from God. I hope this week when the Lord adds something to your plate, you take it as a blessing. You take it as an assignment from the Lord. And lastly, I pray, I pray, I pray that discipleship kills secrecy. Because if we are secret about the things of the Lord, it will kill our discipleship. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for this time. As we get ready to close with a song about how good you are, I pray that we would not just sing that, but we would believe it. And even this week, we would experience it. And that you would give us someone to be able to share it with, Lord. Lord, you are far better to us than we've been to ourselves. And God, when we think about the reality of the resurrection, when we think about the reality of you dying for us, it is overwhelming. It is life-changing. It's something that should overwhelm us in a really, really good way. God, as we get ready to sing, Lord, I pray that we would specifically take moments to reflect on all that you've done. That we would take moments to reflect on how good you've been to us. And we would take moments, God, to thank you for where you're taking us. We love you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.